I think there are two key things, which is health and education. And I believe it should not be left to market forces. It should be almost a fundamental right and not equal health care and not that people cannot buy on additional things if they want to. But you will not get a good society and ultimately it will impact all of us if we do not invest in a reasonable amount of health for everyone. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Imagine coming from a family of six sisters, all of whom become physicians. Well, my guest today on the SIDCast is one of those six sisters, Dr. Lucy Gilbert, who's a doctor at McGill University in Montreal and professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, as well as the Department of Oncology at McGill University. And the reason why I wanted Dr. Gilbert to join me today is she's a trailblazer in so many ways, being one of six sisters, of course, to become doctors in an era where that just did not happen very much is fascinating. And we're going to talk about her early years, the role of her parents, and the fact that, how does that happen? All of us who are parents are thinking we want the best for our kids, and especially for girls who have, even today, fewer opportunities, some places in the world, some places in America and Canada, for that matter, with less opportunities than others. And this is an incredible success story. But the other reason why I wanted Dr. Dr. Gilbert to join us is because she is doing some absolutely path-breaking work on trying to cure, and there's a word for you, cure a certain type of cancer, ovarian and endometrial cancers. The success rate has not improved in the last 30 years. It is a devastating cancer. What she's been doing in her research, and she has a startup that's involved with this, she's gotten a lot of funding now and is involved in all kinds of clinical trials is she's developed a test where you take a sample and you use artificial intelligence to distinguish the cells that might be cancer versus those that are benign. It's kind of a revolutionary approach. It's one that has huge, huge potential. And how she got there, how she thinks about that, what she's learned along the way, and how she thinks about treatment for cancer, for women in particular, but for people in general, are all topics that are on the table today. And I wonder also if this technique continues to get good results in the ongoing trials and tests. Is this a technique or some version of this technique that could be applied to other types of cancers using artificial intelligence? We have to believe that to some extent that's the direction we're going and it'll be really interesting to see. So Dr. Lucy Gilbert is just a wonderful guest for us. So interesting, so personable. And she talks about her sisters in different places as well in North America and her life as well. I have to say that it was really a treat to talk to her. And so anyways, let's get into it. Let's talk to Lucy. Let's learn from Lucy and let's kind of marvel at what it takes to make all this happen. Dr. Lucy Gilbert on the SIDCast. Welcome to the SIDCast. It's Sid Finkelstein, and it's an absolute pleasure today to be with Dr. Lucy Gilbert. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Sid. It's great to have you. Thank you for joining me. We were just chatting for a minute before we started, and you remarked that you might not be the usual guest that I have. I have a lot of people that are leaders in business and others. Actually, I have to think about it. Have I ever had other doctors? It's possible. Not many. I had researchers, many, but not in medicine more in other academic fields. So there's just so much to talk about. You know what I want to start with, though? It's kind of this amazing thing. You and your sisters. Is it possible that you're all physicians? Yes. We are seven girls in our family and we're all physicians. This is unusual, and I think... <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it is because of my father. He was an inspiration. And we're talking about many years ago, 60 years ago, because I'm 67. And at that time, he was way out of his time because I come from a small South Asian community. Though I was born in Singapore, we stuck to these traditional values. And in our community, women were homemakers. And it meant that you were important and you were useful for your family and your community, but you were a financial burden because you depended for financial security on someone else. We had this terrible, and I believe it still exists, that you had to pay a dowry to get married. And therefore, imagine this poor man 
had seven girls to give substantial dowries. So it would have been a burden on anyone else. But he was remarkable and he considered us assets. And he made us believe that the only limits were what we set for ourselves. And if you wanted to be a provider for your family, that's what you did. You did anything you wanted to. And this was truly something that were very formative for us. He had something which I think only later on I realized how unusual it was. It was something from Bernard Shaw's dedication to a friend and a critic, which was called, This is the True Joy of Life. The being used for a purpose, recognized by yourself as a mighty one. The being thoroughly worn out before being thrown into a scrap heap. So to be brought up on this was very unusual and it was instilled in each one of us. That is really, really amazing. I wonder though, because so you're in a very traditional society. Yes. When you went to school, the other girls weren't like you. I'm going to guess. I must say that our community, we are called Malayalis, education was taken very, very seriously. But not everybody deferred to being provided for. You made, uh, contributed in different ways. So yes, we were rather unusual. Did you ever feel like because you were brought up in this, I mean, it's a fantastic way to be brought up, but because it's unusual, especially when you're kids, anyone is a little different, sometimes has more challenges. I don't think I felt this. I remember feeling privileged and inspired rather than challenged. And the challenges, actually, the first time I felt burdened and challenged was when I was in England. It's very strange that you come from a little community, South Asian community, and you don't feel challenged and burdened and you feel you can do what you want to do. And then in England, when I was training in obstetrics and gynecology, it's a surgical specialty. It's a lucrative specialty. That was when the challenges seemed insurmountable. Really? What was the nature of the challenge at that point? Okay. I wanted to be a consultant gynecologist and I knew I wanted to do gynecology for 0.2% women. Mm. Just women, never mind Asian or Indian or colored. So because, again, you think it would be liberated and so on and so forth, but there was distinct roles for the sexes. And I remember going to interview after interview. And at one particular interview, I was, first of all, when I told my consultant, who's a wonderful man, very kind, very supportive, thought very highly of me. And I said, oh, I want to be a consultant because you could be a trainee, but then you stopped and you moved on to the side to be an associate rather than a consultant, which means you lead a unit. And he said, no, you cannot. I said, why is that? And he said, you are black and not in a derogatory way. He just wanted me to understand the challenges. He said, you're a woman, you're married with children and you're geographically immobile. Because my husband was a general practitioner, he was fixed in an area and you should be able to just get up and go everywhere. I did not find this insulting. I just found it an eye-opener, and I immediately know, okay, this, this, this is what are the challenges, and this is what I have to address. And I prefer things to be out in the open rather than cloaked. But what's interesting is you didn't feel some degree of anger or being upset about very unreasonable societal norms that were illogical and discriminatory. I didn't. And in a way, this is an advantage that first generation immigrants have. And I find my daughter was born in England and who went to the best public school, you know, the really expensive school yes. called the public school. It's a disadvantage because they are shocked when people discriminate and do that. For me, it was a given. And therefore, you just felt, okay, I know now what the score is. Right. So in a way, this is why I believe the first generation tend to do a bit better. And now I'm generalizing. But you kind of know this is the problem. and This is what I have to deal with. I did not find, I was sad a bit, realized this is going to be a burden. 
So if you go back to Shaw's thing, it says the being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish cloud of ailments, complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. You know everybody has difficulties. This is what you work with. So do you think that that sensibility that you grew up with and understood, and that's part of you, that is even today not that widespread, would you say? You are touching upon something I believe is very important and I believe should be addressed in schools because the proportion, because I'm a teacher, I'm a professor, I have students, I have trainees from all ages, from med school right up to fellowship. And the proportion of people who are depressed and anxious and sad, I believe, I don't have the statistics, are higher And in many ways, I cannot understand why it's so high, because on the face of it, you would think that this person has a lot going for. Why is this person feeling very anxious and sad and depressed? It is a problem. Yeah. So I just want to dig a little deeper on this because it's quite an interesting perspective. Is it about expectations, do you think? When you have expectations, I don't even know who has expectations that it's an equal playing field out there. I don't know that that exists. I think their eyes are wide open. But the reaction of people is generally not the same as what you're describing, which is this almost comfort level. It's more like we're going to fight to change it. And and we respect that we understand that because those are a good thing. You kind of looked at it and say, almost like a business problem, if you will. Okay, here's the environment. (laughs) Here are the people that I need to sell something to, meaning my right to be here and to be great and to accomplish things and have opportunities. And let me just figure out how to do that and not get bogged down with the underlying, even systemic reasons why this might exist. Is that a fair summary? Yes, I think you're very astute. I did not look at it this way till you mentioned it. I believe that is it. And I believe it is in many of my sisters too. Hmm. that it's almost, and you put it, and it could be considered insulting you. It's almost like a business. (laughs) (laughs) And that is it. This is how it is. And this is what you can do, as opposed to having society change, which would be lovely. But you're here for a little time in this world, and this is what you do. Which is not to say that you don't want to do what you can to change the deeper issues. There are some people who would dedicate their careers, and that's the primary goal. And then there's another way of saying, well, let's dedicate my career accomplishing, having this impact, which is what you're talking about. And along the way, it turns out that you can become a role model and you can influence a lot of other people. It's almost like more of a grassroots change effort, if you will. I mean, it's an odd thing to say grassroots for physicians and accomplished clinicians and professors, but in a sense, that's what it is. I believe so. So back to the sisters. It's so interesting. And let me ask a very simple question. How did your family have enough money to pay for all of the cost of medical school? First of all, university and advanced university. Because we went to medical school in India. And in a way, that is one of the strengths of India and even the UK. Because my children, my daughter is a doctor too. She went to med school. She went to Imperial College. It's on a merit basis. And it doesn't cost you an arm and a leg if you are good. And this, I believe, comes back to something I think is fundamentally important. And I don't know if you want to talk about it. I think there are two key things, which is health and education. And I believe it should not be left to market forces. It should be almost a fundamental right and not equal health care and not that people cannot buy on additional things if they want to. But you will not get a good society. And ultimately, it'll impact all of us if we do not invest in a reasonable amount of health for everyone, regardless of your ability to pay, and a reasonable amount of education for everybody, regardless of your ability to pay. I'm privileged and I'm very happy to say that I did come from a wealthy family, but All of my friends were expected to be married off to other wealthy people and then be home. I was pleased that my dad did not think that about each of us. 
So each of you and your sisters were able to go your own path and find partners when you were ready to find those partners. We could have done that. But I mean, this is going to sound very, very odd. <laughs> In our culture, it's almost like England. I don't know about the US. It's almost like England a century ago that there would be people suggesting someone from your social class. And that is how it works. Yeah. And then people come along and ask my dad, oh, this is, this is, you're interested in thing. And believe it or not, they'd ask, how much would you pay? <laughs> how much would you come with? What's the wealth that you'd come with? And you're supposed to say this, 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 this. And he said, my daughters are not for sale. And this is so unusual. So many years ago, he said, I am a wealthy man. They'll get what I have, but they're not for sale. And they say, of course, of course, of course. But, you know, can you kind of... Now, what will be in that bundle? <laughs> yeah, in that bundle. And they would come back to it in many, many ways. And he would just repeat, my daughters are not for sale. And this made us feel immensely good. Yes, for sure. Sounds like a very remarkable man. So where did your sisters end up? Are you all over the world? Yes. One sister, the one just younger to me, she's actually the senior associate dean of Georgetown Medical School. And she's the head of infectious disease there. She is also rather blunt like me. <laughs> <laughs> And the other one is a pediatric endocrinologist. She trained at George Johns Hopkins and she's in Baltimore. Then I have one who's head of critical ICU at Georgetown. So it's all in most of them on the East Coast and one is in the West Coast in Seattle. So they're all there. And so we say if we go on a trip, mm -hmm. almost all the specialties are covered. You <laughs> don't have to take health insurance. You don't need any extra health insurance. That's funny. <laughs> you come with your own insurance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how did you end up in Canada then? Because we were all born in Singapore, we had British passports. It was a British colony. Now it's been reverted back and it's how Hong Kong was. What happened to Hong Kong a few years later? Mm -hmm. So we could have gone to England, which I chose to. And many of my sisters just chose to go to the U.S. From there, once you get used to a single-payer healthcare system and so on and so forth, it's very difficult to change. So I did spend three years in the U.S. in the National Cancer Institute. And after that, I actually signed a contract to go on staff at Johns Hopkins and got cold feet at the very end because when I'm with my sisters and we get a phone call from the residents and the fellows about an admission, and in England, you're used to have people telling you, and the blood pressure, and these are the results, and this is the lactate, and so on. But for my sisters, it's always the person is insured, not insured. You start in a different way. And they are used to it. They are very kind and good, but they're used to it. And they would choose the investigations, as it were, and how you follow, depending on those challenges. Once you're in oncology, it's extremely, extremely difficult to do that. And I just could not do that. So I gave my apologies and apologized profusely to the chairman. And I felt like a heel for doing it. And I went back to England. Given that my entire family and my parents were then in the U.S., mm -hmm. I felt lonely. And when I got an opportunity to come to Canada, which would be similar and only mm -hmm. an hour away from the U.S., I chose Canada. Do you ever have debates with your sisters on public policy, healthcare policy? So much, so <laughs> much. It's only the most vocal of us is my sister. Her name is Prince Kumar, who's at Georgetown. We get along so well. We're actually almost friends, except on this. And we clash so much. We have to say, let's not go, even accidentally stray into this field because it's almost as though we are from different planets. I don't know whether you know, but I grew up in Canada, in Montreal, as a matter of fact. Oh. <laughs> yes, I went to Concordia University. My wife went to McGill University. I've lived in the U.S., went to graduate school here and stayed here for over 30 years now. So I'm very familiar with the two types of healthcare systems. The types of debates that you get here are quite interesting. 
because Canadian healthcare, it's 100% political. The Republican point of view is it's socialized healthcare and there's long waits and you can't get what you want. And the Democratic version is this is what we should have here. This has been going on for decades. But even when you go look at Obamacare, that's now still going strong after maybe 10 years or whatever it is, there was still not a willingness to go to a single payer system. It was too much. It was too far to go which is really interesting. Is that not the case in most countries in Europe, Western Europe, to be sure? Like in France, for example, in addition to the UK? Yes. I think the US stands out for a civilized, wealthy, informed society in not having universal health care because it truly is quite sad. At least you're not my sister. So, Cindy, I don't that, mind. <laughs> I can say that. And you can edit it out if you want. <laughs> I'm not editing anything you say. <laughs> it's all staying in. <laughs> so how is it that you got the opportunity to go to Canada to, to McGill? They recruited you for a particular opportunity. So in England, it's very traditional. You become a consultant and then you stay in that same job for the rest of your life, you know. So one of my colleagues, younger colleagues, he was Indian also, he told me, will you be my referee? And I said, why? He said, I'm going to Miguel. I said, why would you do that? He said, the place we came from, again, virtually obsessed with percentages, 0.8% of the population in the place he lived were non-Anglo-Saxons. And he felt, he said, for anything, I have to go to London or Birmingham. There is, it's so homogeneously, I don't want my children to grow up in this community. I would like a McGill and Montreal is so different. Will you be my referee? And I said, of course. So he came out two years before me. And then I got a call one day out of the blue from our chairman of the department at that time saying, would you be interested in coming to McGill? And I said, no. And he said, there's no obligation. We'll sponsor you. You come and do grand rounds. You stay for a couple of days and there's nothing, no obligation. You can go back. But it was in June and you know how Montreal is in June. Quite lovely. Yes. <laughs> and the place I was in England was in the north of England. Very boring. And I thought, this is incredible. But I was afraid because I was much older and one does not change a careers and go to an end and you lose your network and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So it took me a year. He was very persistent and he kept calling. And I thought, OK, if I don't do it now, I'll never do it. And I'm so glad I did. What were your impressions of moving to Montreal? Because it's not June all year round, as we well know. February is quite another story. Everybody must give themselves two years. This is odd. You did say we could bring in frivolous things. I like antiques. And I came from England with 52 cases oh of old things. And if I stayed in Montreal, it was the thought of packing this up. I was so miserable the first two years. I just felt I couldn't make such a move. And that made me stay. And I'm so glad I stayed. Because after getting used to the weather and after getting used to the lack of England, now it's not that way. I have many friends who say the NHS has gone to the dogs. But when I was a consultant, it was very structured. Mm -hmm. You had enough secretaries, you had enough nurses, but you couldn't access the top. You couldn't access expensive medications and this, but the structure was in place. I come to Megill and you have half a secretary. There are no nurses. And I found all of that extremely, extremely difficult. For example, in England, you go to round and the head nurse will follow you and you take a decision together. And here people will be just writing notes. You go to round and you say, oh, I'm here to round. And they say, excuse me, because the concept of nurses and doctors going to see a patient together mm -hmm. did not exist when wow. I came, but it does now. It does now. It does. And that's something you brought in or wanted to do? or was I brought in. I believe nurses are the experts in continuity of care. They're there in the ward. If the doctors go into the room of a sick patient and maybe a relative, 
and take a decision and then come back and convey it. What I would believe we should do is we should say, do you have any concerns before we were going to the room? They are there for the conversation and you come back and tie up the loose ends. So now I go there and if they say they're busy writing notes and chatting, I'd say, I'll wait. Or when do you want me to come back? Doctors are not going into the room without the patient's nurse. You're making me think of something that's somewhat related, I think, and I'll just bring it up to see how it connects. I've had over 120, 130 people as guests over the years, and they're all, every single one of them, fascinating in whatever venue there are. But I don't always remember them off the tip of my tongue, but now I do remember another doctor. (laughs) Dr. Rita Sharon is her name, C-H-A-R-O-N. She's at Columbia University. And she is one of the founders of what has been called narrative medicine, which is about really trying to create, using skills from literature to try to understand what's going on in the life of a patient so that you could really understand what needs to happen, what the best treatment plan might be, and that the patient, him or herself, has an opportunity, and you're trained to help bring that out of that patient, to talk about what they really want. Because when you talk about something like cancer care, well, you want to live. It's a little bit simple in that respect. But if you have a knee injury, what do you want? But do you want to play tennis again, or do you want to go hiking, or do you want to pick up your granddaughter, or what have you? And to have that type of conversation. So I don't know whether that's a field that you've worked in or have seen at McGill. As I say, now several schools that have programs like master's programs, mostly physicians in those programs, sometimes nurses. But it's all about trying to allow patients to be part of the healing process and the healing plan by understanding who they are as much as you can as a whole person. This is hugely, hugely important. In cancer care, this assumes huge importance when we are discussing almost an incurable situation, okay? So here you have limited time, you're running out of options. It's very, very important. But even earlier and in the end-of-life care, breaking bad news, we have courses and a lot of literature and studies on this. However, there's something much, much earlier. Mm-hmm. I actually heard it on This American Life. Believe it or not, <laughs> some of my <laughs> very important points I pick up about how to practice and how to live life comes from podcasts. So well done, Sydney. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so this Stepping into your life, it actually transformed the way I deal with patients because sometimes patients come along and they say something so far-fetched. For example, using baking soda, they want to use baking soda to treat cancer. And before, I had no patience with this. It was immediately, no, no time for this, go on. And after this, what I do is pretend that I believe it's okay to just explore a little bit and say, yeah, you know that we could do that, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But immediately you're not creating a wall or a barrier between you and that. So if you start and you tell them that I think okay, if so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But you may want along with that to consider such and such. So I think, yes, it is really meeting somebody Mm -hmm. where they are and starting from that point. An implication of what you just said, maybe it's not too much of a stretch, is around the placebo effect. That maybe by meeting them where they are, I mean, it's not exactly, but I don't think it's that far removed. I want to ask you what you think about that just in general, the placebo effect, and whether it can possibly exist for something like cancer. Hugely, hugely, hugely. Because I tell patients what we do with surgery and chemotherapy and immunotherapy and radiotherapy is the tip of the iceberg. People think cancer is this alien thing that comes along. The DUP gene project is really based on that. Cancer is a process that takes years. And it's these mutations and another mutation and another mutation. And you can have the same cancer for the same stage, for the same grade, for the same effect. One patient will do very well and another patient will not. And so we actually do not understand a lot of what this is, but a lot depends on immunity. It's such a complex machinery and the immunotherapy we use depends on this. But inside the body, 
why certain cells are almost ring-fenced and kept in their place, while in another person it just goes berserk, Mm. is related to all these things. So the placebo effect is so huge, which is why you have randomized controlled trials. Nothing gets into medicine and gets approved with Without what we say level three evidence, which has its own flaws. The placebo effect runs at 30 to 60 percent, depending on what it is. Wow. Do you know about the trial in the past for heart disease? You used to tie off your internal mammary artery and it was thought to help collateral circulation to the heart. It was a proper procedure till they did a trial in which People actually had their sternum cut just to make that and not done. And that showed the actual procedure tying off the artery wasn't good, which is why it is hugely, hugely important to do placebo control trials. Why placebo is so important. How you deal with people and get them to come along with you matters a great deal. I don't think this exists, but you made me think about it would be unethical, so it cannot happen. But if a patient thought that you were doing a procedure on them, but you did nothing, never mind cutting the sternum, which is big enough problem, just do nothing. That placebo effect might kick in, but of course you can't do that. Unless maybe in some part of clinical, there are clinical trials where you actually don't do any procedure. I'm not sure. So if you look at our chemotherapy, immunotherapy trials, the patients don't know whether they're getting that, mm-hmm. but they're getting an intravenous. So many of them believe that they are getting it. We believe, but then we look sometimes at the side effects and blood counts. And that's when we kind of guess that perhaps they are not getting it. So that is because you want to remove the placebo effect. And from your point of view, you wouldn't know who's getting what treatment. No, it's a double blind. Double blind, exactly. There's a lot of things I could ask you about that, but I want to make sure we're talking about the work you've been doing on cancer care and the genetic work and the marker that you found. And maybe you could share for our lay audience, although I actually have plenty of physicians that listen in, but most are not. Your research has been going on for quite some time. What problem you're trying to solve and where you're at now with that? So most cancers of the solid organs, if you detect, Detected in stage one, very early stage, and we call it stage one A, but it's confined to the organ. The treatment can be curative. You remove a part of the organ, a small part, and you may need to follow it with radiation or chemo, often nothing at all, and you can cure. So most stage one A cancers, whichever organ it is, the cure rates run at 90% or so, 95% cure, not survival. By the time it gets to stage three and four, which is distant metastasis, the cure rates are below 10%. It really is so poor. And for ovarian cancer and a type of endometrial cancer, which is uterine cancer lining, which is very common, they present to us in stage three and four. So all we are doing is firefighting. And for a long time, we just accepted this is what happens. So in about 2008, patients come, they do exactly what you tell them to do. You do these brutal surgeries that some of our surgeries last six to eight hours. Then you give chemotherapy for six months. They are half all soft eyebrows fall out and lose your taste buds. And then they do everything and the cancer is back in 12 months, 18 months, and you go on second round. And all this is because of late stage diagnosis. And we thought ovarian cancer, maybe it's not having access to early investigations, having access. So we set up these Davi clinics, which is called detecting ovarian cancer early. If the slightest symptoms, you could come, you get a free CA125, free ultrasound scan. What we showed for the first time, and we published it in Lancet Oncology, what we showed for the first time, it was suspected, but that ovarian cancer is not ovarian cancer. It's tubal cancer in 75%. So if you imagine the uterus like this, you have the fallopian tubes and you have these beautiful finger-like processes at the end of the fallopian tube, which is called the fimbria and which touches the ovary. 75% of the high-grade serous ovarian cancers which kill are 
not from the ovary, but they are from the fallopian tube. And because it's from the fallopian tube, these tiny cells drop like icing sugar and they go on to the omentum, the gut, the undersurface of the diaphragm while they are microscopic. So just looking at the ovary and looking for imaging changes and looking for something to change in the blood, it will stage three. And we are the first people to show it in a general population that you cannot pick it up by this imaging in stage 1A because it's tubal cancer. And I believe that one of the problems is that we continue to call it ovarian cancer because you have to name something first properly. Mm -hmm. So that then made me realize that you can't rely on imaging. You must go further up the trajectory of the disease. And cancers are caused by mutations in cells. And they're called somatic mutations, not the mutations that you inherit from your parents, but mutations that arise in the organ. So we developed this concept of taking a pap test from inside the uterus, because by that you're going as near the fallopian tubes as possible. And the fallopian tubes entire purpose of existence is to take cells from the ovary, an egg from the ovary, and push it into the uterus. So if this is what it's supposed to do, it could pick up these cancer cells very early and shift it into the uterus. And by using a genetic pap test, picking up somatic mutations, we would hopefully get the cancers early. And that's what we showed in a phase two trial. And that's what we're doing in a phase three trial to come up with that universal screening test for women. Because if you look at all the diseases that there are effective screening tests, you can pick them up early. So we started with the Dubby Clinic. Dub stands for detecting ovarian and endometrial cancer early. And we added the gene to it using genomics. How do you know what gene to look for? Okay, people have been working on this for ages. So there are genes that have been identified as driver genes which cause these cancers. But we are not just interested in the genes that cause the cancer because I'm not interested in the biology of the disease. I'm interested in an early detection tool. So what we have done is in more than 600 women who had a cancer and no cancer, we took these PAP tests and using an algorithm based on machine learning, mm -hmm. differentiated the combination of genes that are associated with cancers from those that are associated with normal, benign, mm -hmm. age-related changes. Is it the case that that bundle of genes always leads to cancer? This is a very, very clever question. I did not think of this. Somebody called Bert Vogelstein, who's an incredible, incredible cancer scientist at Johns Hopkins, has been working on this. Where we came, I believe, because I'm very practical mm -hmm. and I'm not so much interested in the biology and discovery as coming up with a tool. We showed that a lot of these mutations are just mutations. And it's associated with polyps, it's associated with just aging, but there is a critical combination and point. So it's almost like one straw on the camel's back and then another one and another one. And then there's the final straw that tilts it towards cancer. And we are just interested in this combination that will more likely suggest that this is a cancer. We aim for 99% specificity, but have learned to compromise a little bit so as to gain on that sensitivity. So yeah. it does not always cost us, but using AI and machine learning, we come up with a classifier that gets as many of these cancers without getting too many of the benign conditions. How big of a problem is this? How many women get cancer of this type every year? Thank you so much for asking that because for a long time, these cancers are dismissed as, oh, this little, you know, this gynecologic. 
Ovarian and endometrial cancers, together of more than 90 cancers that affect women, it jostles for the third or fourth position. So it's a big in incidence, in deaths, in suffering, in healthcare costs, it's within the top four. So if you continue to ignore it, you are not doing anybody a service. So is this a test that women would get after a certain age every year? There is no point doing it under the age of 45. Though you have heard of cancers, you try and ovarian cancers occurring in very young women, they are the other type. They are not the high-grade serous. They are the ones that actually start in the ovary. So they will enlarge. So you can see it with an ultrasound scan. You have blood markers. It's different. The type that we are talking about, which kills, which presents at stage three and four, 95 of them occur after the age of 45. So you can confine yourself. We started our trials on age 45 to 70 and then realized that maybe we should extend the age ethics approval and amended it to do from 45 to 75. And the other important point you asked, do you do it every year? At the moment, we believe we cannot decide between every second year or third year because we are going so earlier on in the trajectory of the carcinogenesis that perhaps three years may be too long. Every year may be too short. Mm -hmm. So at the moment, we are working on the concept of every two years. So you're working on, of course, going through the various trials but also bringing this outside of the lab, so to speak, but to a wider set of patients. So have you created a company for this purpose? How are you trying to do that? Not yet. We would need to do that soon. At the moment, we are concentrating on going through the clinical trials, okay? Because this is what is needed to convince FDA and Health Canada and so on and so forth that it should be a test. I'm not interested in a test that is not reimbursable. Anything to make an impact on the population must be accessible. If you look at that cervical pap test, it was introduced in Canada in the 60s, late 60s. And when it was introduced, cervical cancer was the second highest killer of Canadian women. And now it's 15th or 16th. In the whole of Canada, 380 women died last year of cancer of the cervix. And more than that number of women die in just Montreal, ovarian and endometrial cancer. So this is the impact for universally available screening tests. So we are collecting even the economic data, the health economic data to really make a case. And so all my energy is concentrating on this. And I know at some stage, once we have overcome this part, we will have to work on a startup and so on. But McGill is very good and very helpful. And we have the Office of Tech Research and Technology working very closely with us. That is exciting. How far off do you think you will be? We believe that we will complete the recruitment. We are so lucky that I could not have done this in the U.S. And that's why the single-payer healthcare system works. Because if you look at when I worked with Bert Vogelstein from Johns Hopkins, you have people come in and then they have a problem and they go off, okay? While in Montreal, your patients are very loyal and the community all buys into this concept and people don't move. So if we have very good data mm -hmm. that you can follow up for a very long time and people take part in research, there's a sense of altruism. It's so strong here. So this is why for a fraction of the cost mm -hmm. of doing this trial in any other place, we have managed to recruit. And we have at the moment almost 1,200 women on the waiting list waiting to have it done. So all the problems are in our capacity to keep doing this test. Those 1,200 women on the waiting list, it's not that they all would, well, let me ask you. They're healthy women. Healthy women. Healthy women. And they would get the test. 
we've already done the test on, again, I think almost a thousand women and we give results back and the test has two components. We're very proud of this test because it picks up somatic mutations inside, tells them about prevalent cancers, but we also do a saliva test simultaneously, which picks up the BRCA genes, talk about the genetic susceptibility to these cancers. So we have picked up and so our test will also help the families of the people involved because if you pick up the BRCA1 and 2 mutations, it has profound consequences for their family members too. So I think it took a long time from 2000. We've been working on this, but at the end is in sight. And I believe in about two to three years, we will have this if all goes to plan. So what is that? You call it the BRCA test. What is that? So this is very common. It's what Angelina Jolie had. It's a mutation. It's a very well-known mutation. It stands for breast cancer gene. Basically, all of us have the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. But if it's mutated, your ability to correct mutations are compromised. So you have an 80% chance of getting a breast cancer and a 50% chance of getting an ovarian cancer. So it's very common in Ashkenazi Jews. It's common in French Canadians. Some ethnic groups have it more common. Mm -hmm. But if you have it, imagine having an 80% chance of getting a breast cancer. So we offer prophylactic mastectomy, prophylactic ophorectomy, and stop these cancers before they affect people. So... Our test does a lot. It's not just finding the prevalent cancers at that time. I think it's very exciting. I'm so grateful to McGill, to the Montreal community, to our donors. Our project is funded by Genome Quebec and Genome Canada because I believe it will make a huge difference in a few years. One other question about the trials, just so I understand. So women do the test and there's data that comes out of that test. How do you know that that data is predictive of the actual cancer? Again, that's a very important question. So that's why it is a trial, because we tell women that this is what the phase two study. So we found this test, your score is higher then it should be. So this could mean you have a cancer, but there is a three out of 10 chance. So first we kept the threshold. We didn't want to be frightening women, but I dropped the threshold a little. And I said, you have two options. All the ultrasound is perfect. The CA125 is perfect. We could watch you very, very carefully. Repeat the test in about four to six months. Do all these other tests. Or you could have a hysterectomy and remove up both your tubes and ovaries. And we have to track everything that happens to both the groups. And that is what this trial is about. So if you end up doing more hysterectomies than you should, which is a major surgery, and that's why the blood test CA125 and endovaginal ultrasound scan, we are told not to offer that as screening test because on the basis of two huge trials, one is called the PLCO study done by NIH and UKC talk study done in the UK, it was shown that these tests have too many false positives mm -hmm. and too many false negatives. And it just causes a lot of problems. So this is what we are trying to show, that this test does not identify too many women wrongly and it picks up enough cancers. And therefore, it's worthwhile doing. That's what the trial is about. When there is a hysterectomy, you now have the ability to analyze those exactly. cells at a level that you could probably not ordinarily do. And that helps confirm the predictive. Exactly. Well, this is fantastic what you're doing, your team is doing. And it's exciting as someone still proud of Canada to see how Canadian government, Quebec government, been very, very supportive. Of course, in the US, the NIH is very, very big, but there's a gigantic venture capital community. There is yes. in Canada as well. And Canadian government is heavily involved. In fact, I have a former student who works for the Canadian government in venture capital, helping to lead the effort. So it exists there. It's a critical thing. But I think governmental... And I think also in your case, McGill University funding just makes such a big difference. So when people think about you know, the, the donations that we give for various causes, this type of research 
doesn't just happen. Takes a lot. What is important about this, I just want to get this in. It was a partnership between Genome Canada, Genome Quebec, and MUHC Foundation, which is McGill University Health Center Foundation, of which Julie Kenville is the president. And if she didn't have the courage to say, we will come in as a public partnership, we would not have got this trial off the ground because it is not discovery work. It's late stage R&D to get a clinical implementation of the test. And I'm very grateful to the McGill University Health Foundation and to Genome Quebec and Genome Canada. And in fact, the person you just mentioned for my listeners, Julie Kenville, was a guest on the SIDCAST in season three and is the one that said, you really want to talk to Dr. Lucy Gilbert. So here we are, we come full (laughs) circle. This has been such an interesting conversation. I've learned a ton and I really have enjoyed the way you've explained not just the technical parts, but kind of your life story which is unusual. There's not a lot of families with seven sisters, end of sentence, seven sisters that are all physicians. You were talking about 0.2% of this or 0.8%. We could do the same thing about your family. And I think it'd be less than (laughs) 0.2%. So I like to wrap up the podcast by asking one final question about advice. It's a little bit unusual question because it's advice to yourself. If you could magically go back to when you were a young woman, the age of, let's just say 20, you can go back to the 20-year-old Lucy doing whatever you were doing at that age in school, no doubt. And you could lean over to her and say, you know, there's one bit of advice I want to give you about life. What would that be? What would that advice to yourself be at the age of 20? It is to be less stressed, to believe that it was going to be okay. I think to have a degree of trust in the universe, in God, in people really, And don't feel everything rests on your shoulder. It's very interesting. I asked this question to over 100 people. And what you just said is consistent with one of the main themes that comes up, especially from very accomplished people. One of the first episodes this season was with the CEO of Coursera, which is the biggest online education company in the world. And he said he wished that he enjoyed more of his journey. He even said that he was afraid of failing. And we understand that but it took away some of what he could have gotten. And he realizes now you can't go back and fix it, but you could at least share that story and that suggestion to others who are listening who may be in a position to act on. So Dr. Lucy Gilbert, Lucy, thank you so much for being on the SIDCAST. Thanks for sharing your points of view and your amazing research. We look forward to following that work and seeing it as a standard test for 45-year-old and older women not too long from now. Thank you, Sydney, for interviewing odd people. (laughs) (laughs) for being not so conventional. Thank you. Well, I appreciate that. You're definitely not odd, but you are exceptional. Dr. Lucy Gilbert, thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. The SIDCast is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative. Well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please consider giving us a five-star review, and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sitcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.